We're in Colossians chapter 1 again today. Since the beginning of time, God has revealed himself in his creation and then through his word. Initially through spoken word and then ultimately through the written word. And since the beginning of time, mankind has, in many respects, either rejected that or ignored it or not paid attention to it or not been satisfied with it. That's been the story of mankind throughout all of history. And unfortunately, I wish I could say that the church um, hasn't done that, but that's even true of the church, that oftentimes within what is called Christianity around the world and even here in the United States, many reject what is plainly written in the scriptures. We see that today with Many, much of what's going on with the LGBT stuff and that with many churches becoming affirming churches, etc., where they're, you know, ignoring what the Word says and supplanting it with other things. Some churches simply claim that the Word of God itself is not enough. We talked about Hank Hanegraaff and Eastern Orthodoxy in our introduction, where um, within that Eastern Orthodox church, they not only believe that tradition is important, but they place it above the scriptures. You know, I was raised Catholic where tradition, man-made tradition, holds the same value scripture does. So scripture really isn't enough. You need tradition as well. What's always been believed by the church is just as true as what's in the scriptures, but within Eastern Orthodoxy, it's tradition, man-made things above even the scriptures. And I mentioned how they oftentimes will study the writings of the church fathers And when you interpret the scriptures, you always have to interpret them in light of what the church fathers had said. Many claim to know God more fully, to better understand our relationship with him, to become more intimate with him. Other non-biblical, unbiblical, and anti-biblical practices and things are necessary. And so there's even been a pattern within what is called the Christian church to not be satisfied with what's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. A perfect example of this, and I'm going to use this example this morning, not as a way to disparage, and I always have to be cautious with that. I'm going to talk about Sarah Young. How many of you are familiar with Sarah Young's books, Jesus Calling? Well, Sarah, I don't know if you know, but she died this week. She was 72, died this week, yeah. She was originally a missionary with her husband overseas, But she published a book called Jesus Calling. Many of you are probably familiar with it. It's been one of the best-selling Christian books in all of Christianity, even historically. But I just want to share some things. And again, it's not to disparage her. I'm not saying she didn't love the Lord, but she fell into a trap and led the church into a trap. And it directly relates to what we're going to talk about this morning. I'm going to read you something. It was the introduction from her first book. She said, I began to wonder if I could change my prayer times from monologue to dialogue. I had been writing in prayer journals for years, meaning writing her own thoughts down. But that was one-way communication. I did all the talking. I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible. But I yearned for more. It wasn't enough that the Lord would speak to her through the scriptures. She said, I... I yearned for more than that. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on any given day. I decided to listen to God with my pen in hand, writing down whatever I believed he was saying. It felt awkward the first time, 
I tried this. But I received a message. It was short, biblical, and appropriate. It it addressed topics that were current in my life. Trust, fear, closeness to God. I responded by writing in my prayer journal. My journaling had changed from monologue to dialogue. Soon, messages began to flow more freely, and I bought a special notebook to record these words. This new way of communicating with God became the high point of my day. I knew these writings were not inspired as scripture, but... They were helping me grow closer to God. I have continued to receive personal messages from God as I meditate on Him. And so ultimately, if you've ever seen one of her books or picked one of her books up, each chapter, each section in the book is written in the first person, Jesus speaking directly to the audience. And so what she basically began to do was to take down these messages she had received from the Lord and wrote them in the first person and sold them initially as a book called Jesus Calling. Notice what she revealed. She said that what was communicated through the word of God was not enough. She said she yearned for more. She said, this practice of listening to God has increased my intimacy with him more than any other spiritual discipline. Now, that's key there because... This idea of the disciplines comes right out of Foster's work, which is that there are disciplines that we do to grow in our relationship with Christ. And so when she speaks of all these other disciplines, the one discipline that caused her to grow most, she said, to be more intimate with Jesus, was personal messages she believed she was getting from God that she could then write down and share with others. That was more important than any other discipline. Well, the other disciplines mentioned within the spiritual formation movement include things like reading scripture. And she has admitted that, that scripture wasn't enough. And while she may have said, well, these messages I got didn't have the authority of scripture, they ultimately did in practice in her life. And that becomes very apparent as you look at some of her material. Now, what's interesting to me about this is the original, in the original introduction to her book, she made a statement. And she actually changed the introduction because of the pushback she received because of what she had written in that. And so later versions of her book, she had to change the introduction because of the controversy it was causing. But what she had revealed in that was that initially what challenged her was she was indebted to the work of another individual. His name was A.J. Russell. He published a book in 1932 called God Calling. And in that book, what he reveals is that the messages that he had received came through two New Age practitioners. And so what Sarah in her book had claimed was that she was moved, motivated, encouraged, and indebted to the writings of another man who admitted that his material came from New Age individuals. That's a problem, is it not? Now, the reason I bring this up is because Sarah Young wasn't alone and her desire for more and to hear God's voice because her books and other material became worldwide bestsellers everywhere. In fact, her books have been translated into over 30 different languages, sold over 45 million copies, and that's just her book, Jesus Calling. She had expanded it into children's books, devotionals, Bible study books, journals, seasonal books, a digital and print magazine, a podcast, a television program, a website, and an iPhone and Android app, all under the Jesus Calling Enterprise. In fact, not too long ago, I was walking through, I was at um, Der Dutchman in 
Plain City as I was driving back from Dayton, and I stopped in there, and I noticed there was another book called Jesus Listens. I thought that was interesting. It was Sarah Young. I thought it was a bit ironic because she wasn't satisfied with Jesus listening initially, which is why Jesus Calling was written, and now she goes back to Jesus listening. I don't get it. I say that somewhat facetiously. Now, again, I mentioned that she had just died here recently, and again, I'm not saying she didn't love the Lord. I'm not saying that she wasn't a believer, but she was looking to other things to cause intimacy. The Lord's word was not enough for her. She was desperate to hear directly from him. Now, if you think about that for a moment, when you look at the Christian church, there's a lot of that actually in the Christian church. I'm not going to, you probably don't recognize some of the names, so I won't read them to you, but there's all kinds of stuff happening within the Christian church today under the guise of what's called spiritual formation, which ultimately comes from Eastern mysticism, Catholic mysticism, and other things. It's, there's a lot of extra stuff. We talked about um, Hank Hanegraaff and his desire for these um, religious rites and practices and how somehow by performing those things it helps us understand God. You know, how many of you have been up to the Owu campus here? Ohio Wesleyan in Delaware. They've got a giant labyrinth right there you know, that you can go walk through to meditate and pray. Well, that comes right out of Greek mythology. You know, um, there was a, a conference not too long ago associated with the Grace Brethren Fellowship. It was a wider than that, but they, they went as part of that where they were practicing contemplative prayer, which is this idea of, again, almost like what she's talking about here in Sarah Young, but also other forms of ritualistic things um, that you find in Eastern mysticism and Catholic mysticism. And that has infected the church. In fact, we'll talk about this just in a couple of weeks. I'll mention some, some stats, but... Almost every Christian college today, in order to, be, um, to receive your accreditation, has to have classes in spiritual formation. And what's interesting about that is the one, say, for instance, at Grace um, College and Seminary, um, John Haller did an analysis of the curriculum, 110-page analysis of it, and found that out of the 12 books, required reading books, in the spiritual formation classes at Grace College were from unsaved authors. Only two were from people who were saved. But they were supposed to be telling us how to grow and mature in our relationship with Jesus Christ. So, why do I bring all this up? Well, the Colossians were really no different than us. They wanted to know, know God better. They wanted to grow in their relationship. They wanted to be more spiritual. They wanted to um, grow in that relationship. But they were being tempted to go beyond what the Bible describes and what God declares is necessary for that to happen. And so they were getting caught up in things like, Paul says, visions. In fact, he warns them about visions that puff up the mind. Now, Sarah Young, I wouldn't say was seeing visions, but was hearing voices. Okay, I would put that in the same category. Talks about these religious rites that they were involved with. Paul talks about how they were starting to celebrate these religious holidays in a form of legalism, that in order to, to grow, they had to participate in the Old Testament system. He warned them about doing things physically with their bodies. It's not really clear what was happening, but he talks about debasing their bodies. It reminds me of, you know, the pictures of the monks who would flagellate themselves as they walk up the mountain, you know, and beating themselves in the back, or the people down in South America that crucify themselves at Easter. And Paul says they were doing something to their body, thinking it would make them holy and righteous. And so the Colossians were no different than us in that we all want to grow and to, to be more spiritual. We want to be more like God, right? 
But they were going about it the wrong way, or they were at least being tempted to go about doing it the wrong way. And we see much of that in the church today, where right now there's a huge draw in the younger generation towards liturgical-style churches like the Catholic Church. And what they claim is that it just feels more righteous, it feels more holy by doing those things. We also have, and I'll be careful here, but charismatic and Pentecostal churches that are so driven by the experiences, by, by the, the manifestations and the signs and wonders that they seek. My daughter Kimberly experienced some of that with two of her friends down, in, um, down at the Ark where they were so wrapped up in some of that supernatural experiential stuff. And when she would talk to them, their theology was a little messed up. But there was this experience, you know, and so what do we do with that? Well, Paul's going to address that to some degree. I mean, he's been addressing that throughout the whole letter. But this morning, he's going to focus specifically, specifically on what I titled as the wisdom and the knowledge found in Jesus Christ. And it's just a few verses. We're looking at verses 9 through 14. But Paul's going to focus on the wisdom and the knowledge that we have in Jesus Christ and why it's important that we develop our wisdom and our knowledge specifically from Jesus Christ. Let's look at those few verses, starting in Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual, or I'm sorry, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of the steadfastness and patiently and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, before we dive right into this, I want to clarify one thing. I do believe that the Holy Spirit can give us impressions. I do believe that the Holy Spirit can move us to do things. We're told that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin, right? So I don't want to deny the fact that we can get impressions or feel like the Lord is leading us to certain things or can prompt us for certain things, but I do have a problem when we start saying that I'm receiving these direct messages and revelation from God. That's where, to me, we begin to find some challenges scripturally. So I don't want to disparage that, but when Paul now addresses how we are supposed to grow in wisdom and knowledge... He tells us to focus on Christ. And so that's what we're going to see. The first point I want to make, and there's only two of them this morning, it's only the wisdom and knowledge found in Jesus Christ that allow us to know God and His will. It's only through the wisdom and knowledge found in Christ that allows us to know God and to know His will. Go back to verse 9. You notice that it starts off with this phrase, for this reason. That points us back to what was said previously. When we think about what Paul says here, but knowing God's will, is referring to the general will of God. He's not talking about, should I take this job or that job? But what is it that God desires? What is his will for us? And so Paul is going to pray here for the Colossians. And I think we can learn a lot from the prayer if we just look at it. And the first thing that he actually does is he says, for this reason, since the day we heard of it, we've not ceased to pray for you. Well, what is the reason? Why is it that God was praying for them? Well, We find that by jumping back up into verse 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ 
and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as it has in all of the world, constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it's been doing in you also since the day you heard of it, and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epiphras, our fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason. What's the reason Paul was now praying? Because of their faith in Christ. Because they had come to know Jesus Christ. Because they were now bearing fruit and knowledge in Jesus Christ. And so what Paul says is that the very first thing, when it comes to understanding God and his will, is that it begins with faith in Christ. And that's why Paul starts here. As he begins to pray that they would grow in their knowledge and their wisdom and their spiritual understanding, he starts with the fact that it began with you coming to know Jesus Christ. So, the first thing is that understanding God, knowing God, begins with faith in Jesus Christ. Their journey to understanding God all began when they accepted Jesus Christ. Anybody disagree with that? I mean, I was raised in the Catholic Church. I knew who God was. I knew who Jesus Christ was. But I really didn't know God until I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. Much like the Old Testament declares, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. That's Proverbs 9. Just like that, what we find as we come to the New Testament is that we cannot begin to fully comprehend or understand God apart from it first beginning in Jesus Christ. That's what we find in the Scriptures. The second thing we learn from Paul's prayer here is that we can know God's will. So not only does it begin, but Paul makes it absolutely clear, you can know God's will. Notice what Paul says here. For this reason also, since, we, or since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray and ask that you may be filled with the knowledge. That's an important word there. It's a word that focuses on something thoroughly, definitively. It means to know it completely. But not only that, it is a word oftentimes that is used experientially. James uses the same word when he says that we are to consider it all joy. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Well, why is that? Because what James is saying is you know based on your experience what God does with trials. So this knowledge that Paul is talking about is not only a thorough, a definitive, a full knowledge of something. It is something that has to be experienced. We cannot fully know God without the experience of knowing Jesus Christ. That is plain and simple. There are many people who would say, I have faith. Many people that will say, I know God, but have no experience with Him, have no relationship with Him. They do not know God. And so Paul says here that he's praying that they may grow in this knowledge of Him. And again, it's this idea of full knowledge. If you look at Colossians 2, verse 2, he uses the same word. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge. That's the word, true knowledge of God's mystery. That is, Christ himself. Christ is the knowledge of God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There's... There's no mistake why John uses the idea of the Word there and links it to Christ. He is the living Word. So when you think about what Paul is doing here, actually, you know what? Jump down to 3.10. You see something very similar. Chapter 3, verse 10. 
He said, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Again, true knowledge being linked to Jesus Christ. So to be filled with the knowledge of Jesus is to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. In other words, to know Jesus is to know God. To know Jesus' will is to know the Father's will. The reason we can be filled with this thorough or full experiential knowledge of God is because he's chosen to reveal it in his son, Jesus Christ. Just listen to these verses. John chapter 5, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. So Jesus does the things that his father does. Which means if you know what Jesus does, then you know what the Father does, right? John chapter 5, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus said, I do the will of my Father. You want to know God's will? Look at the will of Jesus. John chapter 6, verse 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Lastly, John chapter 14, verse 7. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him, and you have seen him. What does all this tell us? We can know God and his will because he's chosen to reveal that to us in Jesus Christ. I shared with you a while back this individual, Mike, from Streamline, who had showed up at my house to work on some internet issues I was having. We had a great conversation, lasted, I think, all told, maybe about an hour of discussion. It was a fascinating time. Of, he was extremely open, and we were able to chat and everything else. And I asked him a very simple question at one point. I said, now, we look around and we see God's creation around us, and it tells us something about him. Do you agree with that? He said, yes, I agree with that. He said, now, but you also know that our brains don't work the way they're supposed to. And he was willing to admit, yeah, we're kind of broken. I said, so do you suppose we can interpret that correctly? And he said, you know, never thought about it, but you're probably right, which means, through my eyes, I might not interpret everything I see correctly. I'm like, okay, we're getting somewhere. I said, now, do you think God wants you to interpret it correctly? And he went, huh, yeah. I'm like, okay, then how do you think that's possible? And he's like, I don't really know. And I said, I've got a book here that tells me how to interpret it correctly. It overcomes that sin, if you will. It overcomes my broken eyes. So, we have a God who wants to reveal himself, and he has chosen to reveal himself in a way that we could properly understand it. And he's done that primarily through two means. One is through the Word. The second is through Jesus Christ himself. When we look at Jesus Christ, we can know God, and we can know his will. But we have to look at Jesus Christ to understand it. Which means, apart from Jesus Christ, we can't understand God. We can't understand his will. The third thing we can learn from Paul's prayer here is that we can't do this apart from the Holy Spirit. Plain and simple. We cannot do it apart from the Holy Spirit. Notice what he says here. At the very end of verse 9, he says, that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Spiritual wisdom and understanding. Understanding God's will requires this spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's only something that comes from the Holy Spirit. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look at a long passage here. 
First Corinthians chapter two. Listen to what Paul says. Oops, I got to get there. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, not of the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, then they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But it is written, Things which the eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. The first thing we see there, there there's two primary ministries of the Holy Spirit when it comes to Revelation. One of them is simply called inspiration. It's revelation. The Spirit has revealed these secret things of God, the mysteries of God to us. And He's done that through His prophets and through the Scriptures. That's how He works. And so we see that here. The Spirit has revealed them, Paul says. He goes on. For to us God has revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of man except the Spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. They were revealed, given to us by Him. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. So what we see there is that initial part, the inspiration of the Spirit, giving people like Paul or the prophets or the apostles, specifically this new revelation, specifically related to the mystery that had been hidden, which was the gospel. Okay, That's one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit. But then there's another part of that that applies more directly to each one of us. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, we can't understand what the Holy Spirit has revealed in the Scriptures, or through his prophets, or through his apostles. We can't understand that. We can't even accept it. It makes no sense to us. It's foolishness. Unless what? Verse 15 But he who is spiritual, the one who has the Spirit, appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For those, or for who has known the mind of the Lord, that he will instruct him. But we have the mind of Christ. Paul, a little bit later, is going to say that we are in Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Jesus Christ indwelling us. It's no longer our lives who live. It's now Christ living within us. We now have spiritual eyes. We can see things from a spiritual perspective. Because we have the mind of Christ. And so, what Paul lays out for us, the third thing we can learn from this is that, apart from the Holy Spirit, we can't know God's will. We can't, because we can't understand what's written in the Scriptures. We can't even understand Jesus Christ. You want to understand why people will look at Jesus Christ and make a ludicrous statement, well, he was a good person, but he wasn't God. It's like, really? But he lied and everything else then, right? Because he claimed to be God. How can that be a good person? You know, it's, it's a ludicrous statement. 
If Jesus makes a claim, he can't be a good person if that claim is not true. He's a liar and a deceiver. But in their mind, somehow that makes sense. Why? Because they don't have the Spirit. They can't make sense of it. And so we need the Holy Spirit. He not only gives revelation, and again, I would argue that that revelation was primarily given through God's prophets, through the apostles, through the written scriptures primarily. He obviously did reveal himself to individuals. We have prophets in the New Testament. It's pretty clear. But he also illuminates us. So we have the two works of the Spirit there, the illumination of the Spirit and the inspiration of the Spirit, all which are necessary in order for us to be able to understand who Jesus Christ is. You know, it's interesting because Jesus himself claims that he sent us the Spirit for this purpose. John chapter 14, verse 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him, but you know him because he abides in you and he will be in you. John 14, verse 26 says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit from the Father, or whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. We see both there, inspiration and illumination. Because it says he will teach you all things. I believe that was through the scriptures, through the prophets, through the apostles. But he'll also bring to your remembrance everything that I had said. Allow them to understand it, accept it, be illuminated by it. John 16, 13, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes... He will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. What's our takeaway from all of this? The wisdom and knowledge that we find in Jesus Christ is what makes it possible for us to know God and his will. In fact, apart from faith in Jesus Christ, we can't have wisdom or knowledge because it's only found in him. It's impossible to know God without knowing Jesus Christ. And so, I think about this. And, and you know me, I'm a hawk about this. It's all done through the Word. I want you to, there's something that's rather interesting here. Look at Luke chapter 24 with me briefly. Luke chapter 24. And I didn't think about this until this morning, actually. Luke chapter 24. I want you to see something. Luke 24, verse 27. After Jesus' resurrection, he spent 40 days on earth still, meeting with the apostles and the disciples. And there's something interesting here. The first group that he really came across after his resurrection, look at what he does in verse 27. Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Think about this for a moment. Jesus had just been risen from the dead. He's, he's, he meets these, these men walking on the road to Damascus. They're trying to figure out what in the world has just happened here. And Jesus, instead of just sitting down and saying, let me explain it all to you, he opens the book and explain, he answers everything by starting with Moses through the scriptures. Jesus himself, in teaching his disciples, used the word of God to reveal himself. That ought to tell us something. Notice something else. If you jump up into verses 44 through 45, right before Jesus ascended, he says this. We, so we read this. Now he said to them, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand what? The scriptures. 
Jesus' plan all along is that his disciples would grow to understand him, would develop spiritual wisdom and understanding about who he is and what he did through what? Through the scriptures. That was his plan all along. I go back to Sarah Young. It's a misguided thing to think that somehow I can learn more about Jesus Christ by simply sitting in my room and asking God to give me some type of direct revelation about himself that I will then write down in the first person and share with others to help them grow in their understanding of God. Again, Paul warns about how visions to the individual can puff up and can mislead. And so the first thing that we walk away from here is that Paul prayed for them Not that they could go off into all these other mystical practices, but rather would be drawn back to Jesus Christ. He takes them back to the fact that it all began with your relationship with Jesus Christ, and I now pray that you will grow and mature in your wisdom and understanding in Jesus Christ. Why? That's the way you get to know God. That's the way you understand God. So that's our first point. The second point that Paul is going to address here for us, is that it's only the wisdom and knowledge found in Jesus Christ that allows us to please God and to do His will. So not only is wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ necessary for us to understand God, it's also required for us to be able to please Him now and to actually do what needs to be done. Paul and Timothy prayed that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of Jesus so that they could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects. Look at this. Jump back up into verse 10. He prays for them to develop this spiritual wisdom and understanding for a reason. Verse 10, So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened or being strengthened with all power, it's a participle there actually, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? So Paul and Timothy prayed very specifically here in verse 10 that they would be able to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. In the simplest sense, that's what it means to do God's will. To walk in a manner that pleases Jesus Christ. It's a way to walk that honors him, that's worthy of who he is. When you look at the rest of the scriptures, God's will is that we please him in all respects. It's really that easy. You want to know how to do God's will? Focus on pleasing him. Focus on walking in a manner that's worthy of the one who saved you. Turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, jump down to verse 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus himself said that his commitment was to always do things that were pleasing to the Father. That's the same ambition we should have. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Jump down into verse 9. Therefore, We also have as our ambition, our desire, our drive, what moves us. We have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to what? Be pleasing to Him. That ought to be our ambition. Our ambition ought to be to please the Lord. In fact, I'll just have you 
listen, but 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says that that ought to be what we strive for. He says, Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, just as you received from us instruction on how you ought to walk, and please the Lord, just as you actually do, that you what? Excel still more. We find it repeated over and over and over in the scriptures that to do God's will simply means to please Him. To do what is pleasing to Him. And He even tells us how we do that. God didn't just say, you figure it out. In fact, when, we, when I was talking to this individual, Mike, one of the comments he made that I thought was rather insightful, he said, you know, because I asked him, I said, what do you think the main difference is between Christianity and every other world religion? And he struggled a little bit with that. And I said, well, think about how do all those other world religions figure out what God wants and how to please him. And he went, they kind of have to fumble around. I'm like, right. They kind of have to fumble around, figure it out. It's based on their own observation. I said, what makes Christianity different is God laid it all out. Then let us fumble around. You can see the wheels turning in his head like, huh, I never thought about that, you know. But God didn't just give us a list. What he did was he gave us Jesus Christ. He said, just look at him, do what he does. Meaning, walk in a way that honors him. Now, we can't do that apart from the relationship with him, so it's not a matter of doing. It's a matter of allowing Christ to live within us. But God gave us an example, and so we find that Jesus Christ himself and all these examples are just shared. Jesus' goal was to please the Father. He gave us an example. You want to please the Father? Watch me. So now we're told by Paul here that we should walk in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ, which means that we should behave in a way that is worthy of the Savior. Philippians chapter 1, verse 27 says this, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians 4.1, Therefore I, the prisoner of Paul, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling with which you have been called. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and his glory, and he then ties it back to Christ. Repeatedly, over and over and over, we are told to look at Jesus Christ and then walk in a way that is worthy of the one who has saved us. So there is a call to do what Jesus did. You know those little bracelets, what would Jesus do? That's meaningless if you don't have a relationship with him because it's impossible to please God without faith, the scriptures say. But we are called to look to Jesus Christ and to do what Jesus did and then to walk in a way that is pleasing to him, that is worthy of him. Now, Paul doesn't just leave it there. He's actually going to tell us what that looks like. He's going to give us four participles now that sort of break down what does it look like when we walk in a manner that is pleasing, or I'm sorry, that is worthy of the Lord. The first participle is the bearing fruit. Notice he says there, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, And here's the first one, bearing fruit in every good work. Catch that? Bearing fruit in every good work. John chapter 15, verse 8, Jesus said, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so you prove to be my disciples. We are supposed to bear fruit. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul lists that first. Those who know Jesus Christ are supposed to bear good fruit, and one of the fruits we're supposed to bear is good works. It dismays me to see Christians who are not good. (laughs) It it dismays me when I do not act goodly, (laughs) if I can say it that way. What has happened with us that Christians are not always 
dominated by their goodness, always desiring to do good. I remember we went through COVID here recently, and I shared with you before some comments John Haller made about the vitriol and the bitterness and the hatred many Christians share towards another. I'm a part of some Facebook groups that debate eschatology and, and other things, and wow! Like, where's the goodness sometimes, you know? I'm just going to ramble off some more scripture here. Galatians chapter 9, or 6, verses 9 through 10. Let us not lose heart in doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. Titus 2.7 And all things show yourself to be an example of good deeds. Titus 3.1 Remind them to be subject to the rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good, good deed. This list goes on and on and on. i got a handful of more scriptures here. We are constantly called to do good deeds. Why? Because it's worthy of our Savior. Jesus did good. And so for us to walk in a manner that is worthy of Christ, we should be doing good like Jesus did. It's not hard to figure out what that is. You know what good is versus bad, right? That's why we feel convicted sometimes. That's why we struggle in the flesh. Kimberly is, is amazing at this because she's so black and white and she'll tell me, she's like, Dad, it just doesn't feel right to do good. You know, I want to do this, but I know I shouldn't. Thank God for the Holy Spirit, right? So the first thing Paul tells us here, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, which ultimately means to please him, he says, is to bear fruit of good works. Second thing he says here is to be worthy of Jesus and therefore pleasing to God is when we increase in the knowledge of God. That pleases the Lord. We ought to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. That's worthy of him. He saved us. Shouldn't we desire to know more about him? To know who he is? Think about a marriage relationship where you don't continue to get to know your wife or your husband. And so it's the same thing. Remember, when I looked at those passages with Jesus where at the end of, you know, right before he ascended, where he said that he opened their mind to see the scriptures, the point there was that he wanted them to continue to grow and understand who he was. So he opened their minds so that they could understand who he was from the scriptures. So one of the ways that we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord is to make sure that we're continuing to grow and to mature in our understanding of him. If we aren't in the word on a regular basis... It's not going to happen. Sitting in your room and just thinking thoughts in your head and thinking, oh, maybe God is telling me this isn't going to do it, folks. Again, that doesn't mean we shouldn't sit and think and meditate and pay attention and listen. But we ought to be nose in the book, learning who Jesus Christ is, growing in our knowledge and our understanding of him. I've been saved now since I was 18. I'm now 58, so what, 40 years? Still things I'm learning. I don't have it all figured out. Peter actually reflects on this. If you go to 2 Peter chapter... One, how do we increase in our knowledge and understanding? Come on. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in what? The knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Even Peter prayed that their knowledge would grow seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, what? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. 
For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. One of the things that Colossians were trying to do was this very thing, trying to escape the corruption of the flesh. In fact, Paul addresses that a little while later, saying that the practices they were trying to get involved with do nothing to protect against the indulgences of the flesh. Religion never does. Kimberly was sharing an example. She's got two friends from the Ark that, uh, actually, I'm sorry, one of them that uh, lives now in um, the Republic of Georgia. And while she was at the Ark, one of her friends committed suicide. She went back to the Republic of Georgia now and mentioned she was at a funeral the other day for somebody else that committed suicide. And she said that the, the suicide rate in the Republic of Georgia is growing. It is highly Eastern Orthodox. The culture is filled with it. And yet they are empty and they are lost. And she said, that's why. The religion has done nothing for them there. And so Peter tells us here that everything we need, everything we need to become partakers of the divine nature has been revealed to us in a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Plain and simple, that's what he says. Everything for life and godliness has been given to us in understanding who Christ is, what God has revealed to us. The third thing that it means for us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul also reveals here, he says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So the third participle Paul uses here, what does it mean for us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord? Is to rely on him. To rely on his power, not our own strength. You guys remember the story of Zerubbabel? He was actually the governor of Jerusalem, when King Cyrus allowed him to go back to Jerusalem with 50,000 Israelites, and they were supposed to rebuild the walls and the city and everything. And he got there, and because of the opposition, he put everything on hold. He, he stopped building it. And so the Lord sent Zechariah to him, and Zechariah said this. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah, or to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, what the Lord told Zerubbabel is, You can't do this on your own strength and power. That's why you've given up with the opposition. It's not by your power. It's by my power and my spirit that this will be accomplished. It's the same thing for us Christians. We are supposed to do things under the, the power and authority of the Holy Spirit. We can't do it on our own. We are weak, we are feeble. And so Paul reminds us here that walking in a manner worthy of Jesus Christ means that we'll be strengthened by his power, not by our own. Was it Dustin this morning already said, a lot of times you have to fix stuff. Amy shared that you have to fix it on your own, right? We just plain can't do it. I'll share a real stupid story. I decided to replace the timing belt, or not the timing belt, I'm sorry, the um, drive belt on my Honda Civic the other day. I'm like, I can get the part for 20 bucks, or somebody wants to take me to the cleaners and charge me 200 And I'm looking at it, and I, my hands really won't fit even in there, you know? I'm thinking, I, I can do this, you know? So I pulled off the front wheel, and I pulled off a little panel. It was there. I got everything done, you know? And I was, I was struggling. I couldn't get my hands up all the way in there. And I had the belt because it's real stiff. And real, I couldn't get it in there, and, you know, until I stopped. And I said, Lord, I'm ready to lose my religion here. So if I'm going to get this done, I'm going to need some help here. And I meant it with all sincerity. Lord, I know this is silly. This is a belt. This isn't some big spiritual matter. But you know what? I know that if I rely on you, I can get this belt on, and we'll be good to go. And within five minutes, that belt was completely on. All snugged up. And again, silly example. 
But something as crazy as that, having to step back and go, I, I really, I can't do this. Now, maybe Nate could have done it. His hands are smaller than mine. But I was really struggling. And I was reminded, stop, and ask God for help to do this. I think that glorified him. As silly as it seems, I believe that glorified him. That was something that exemplifies walking in a manner that would have pleased Jesus Christ. It certainly would have pleased him if I would have kept struggling with it, and he heard some things come out of my mouth that shouldn't come out of my mouth, or I left some dents in parts of that vehicle that shouldn't have been dented, or a wrench that's now broken in half. Certainly those things would not have been walking in a manner worthy of him. But it was to stop and to pray and to ask for some help. The last thing that Paul reminds us of here is that to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord means that we are joyously giving thanks to the Father. That's something we saw in Jesus Christ. Jesus, multiple occasions, we find him. He's thanking God in the garden for hiding things from the world's wise and intelligent, but revealing them to, he says, infants in Matthew 11. He thanked God before feeding the 4,000 and the 5,000. He thanked God before raising Lazarus from the dead. He even thanked God before he broke the bread and shared the wine at the Last Supper. Jesus was somebody who constantly gave thanks to the Lord. And that's an example for us as well. In fact, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says that it's God's will in Christ Jesus that we give thanks in all things. I'll leave you to look up some of those things on your own so we can wrap this up. But Paul, what he's driving home here, He's really saying, look, you Colossians, if you want to know God better, if you want to grow, if you want to be more spiritual, if you want to reflect God, don't turn to all these other practices and all these other things. Instead, grow in your wisdom and knowledge of Jesus Christ. And then take that wisdom and knowledge and then use it to walk in a manner that is worthy of Jesus Christ. If you do that, you will please the Lord. If you do that, you will do His will. Isn't that really what we want? But we get it all complicated. You know, Hank Hanegraaff gets it all complicated thinking in order to know God more fully and go through the process of theosis, i got to do all these things, you know? No, it's get to know Jesus Christ. Focus on getting to know Jesus Christ. Paul's whole letter will be laying that out for us. We're going to keep coming back to this because the whole entire letter, the whole entire letter is focused on Jesus Christ being sufficient for everything we need. And Jesus Christ is sufficient for the knowledge and the wisdom that we need to understand who God is and to know his will. We don't have to go outside of that. We don't have to jump through the hoops. Now that doesn't mean that things like sitting down and reading your Bible and meditating or asking God to help you make a decision. But you're not doing those things because they somehow in and of themselves give you wisdom or knowledge. You're asking God to open your eyes to what he's already revealed in Jesus Christ, what he's already revealed to us in the Word. That's the way that we do it. That's the way God intends it. So again, Paul prayed for the Colossians that they would grow in their wisdom and their knowledge. Ultimately, in the context of the book, their wisdom and knowledge in Jesus Christ. Amen?